Podcasts from the Cat. You're listening to Business Brunch, and today we're talking to the managing director of a company that is using the very building blocks of mankind to develop very special medicines. Medicines that are based on DNA or gene-based therapies. In the hot seat today, we're pleased to welcome Alan Boyd of Alan Boyd Consultants Limited. Alan, a very special welcome to Business Brunch. Thank you very much, Des, and it's a pleasure to be here. Alan, you're a family man, a professor and a managing director, but most of all, you're a doctor having graduated from medical school almost 40 years ago. So tell us about your career in more detail. Thanks very much. Yes, well, right from an early age, I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I was the first person in our family to go to medical school and uh, I made it and went to the medical school in Birmingham. Obviously, I trained there as, a, as an undergraduate, um, but I, sparked, I had a spark in, of an interest in, in, in more research. So halfway through my medical training uh, at medical school, I went off and did a degree as well in biochemistry and then went back to medicine. So at the end of it, I was, I was qualified in medicine and biochemistry. And that's really what uh, set my interest in, in doing research. Then after graduation, I worked for uh, five years as a hospital doctor in the the West Midlands region. I spent quite a lot of time working in the North Staffs Royal Infirmary uh, and training really to be what we call now uh, as part of being a junior doctor. But I I got a special interest in in medicines and uh, a a topic uh, as part of medicine called clinical pharmacology which is all about how we use drugs to treat patients and perhaps more importantly how the human body actually deals with drugs when when uh, when you're given them so i had after after 5 years i was on an academic track to become a, a a clinical pharmacologist and a consultant but i then had the opportunity to join the pharmaceutical industry to really use my interest in in medicines and to help develop medicines for patients so you you actually went off and did a second degree. Did that raise eyebrows? Did did anybody comment on you doing that? No, in fact, um, quite the opposite. Because uh, you were selected to go off and do another degree, and I, I don't want to boast, but it's you know the people who were the top of the year at that particular subject. You know, I was uh, I, I was very good at biochemistry. I was in the top three in the year out of one hundred and sixty. So I got a special scholarship to go off and do that uh, for a year. Um, so you, you and um, a small number of your peer group w- were selected by professors? Yes, that's right. Yes, we were chosen uh, to do that. And actually, it was very enjoyable. Medicine doesn't really, when you're training in medicine, it doesn't really teach you to be a researcher. A lot of it is all about uh, learning about diagnosis and sort of pattern recognition of diseases. Um, but going off and doing research for a year, a degree in you know, a science subject like biochemistry, gives you a totally different approach to how then you, know, you go off and do your medicine. So presumably, with the thousands of undergraduates going through medical school, only a very small number will move off into research. Well, in fact, it's changed now. I say when I when I was a medical school in the seventies, you were as a very small number. Now it's fairly typical for most medical students to go off and do a, a you know another degree along the way, um, because I think the profession has realised just how useful it is to have a research background as well as a pure medical training. But you could still graduate as a doctor without the second degree. Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. yes. 
So you've, you've worked for some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, including Glaxo, ICI and Zeneca, particularly Zeneca, where you were global head of medical research. So that's quite a rise to fame, isn't it? Share with us why you moved from practising medicine into the commercial world of research. Well, as I said, I got this interest in, in medicines and the development of medicines. And um, I was given the opportunity to join Glaxo in London. I should say that Glaxo was a very different company to what it is today. It was the 25th largest company, not number one, two or three. They had very few medicines, should I say, on, uh, on their range of prescription medicines. It was mainly antibiotics and skin creams. Um, and in fact, they made more money at that time from baby milk and Farley's rusks. And I joined the company to look at and help put many of the research ideas which were coming out of their research group into humans for the first time. So that's why I joined them. I joined them in their, uh, an, uh, an old milk packing factory, actually, in Greenford, and set up a unit to give medicines to human volunteers for the so first time. So was that your choice to, to move towards Absolutely. that company? Yeah. I, uh, you know, it was an interesting move. When I, when I left, uh, you know, as, as a practising doctor, a couple of my professors who were, you know, mentoring me at the time said, uh, Alan is leaving medicine. Because, actually, quite honestly, doctors like me did not leave and, and join the pharmaceutical industry. And did you argue your corner? Well, yes, but actually it couldn't be further from the truth. But, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that, about what I've done since then. And then you moved on to ICI and Zeneca eventually. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I put many drugs when I was at Glaxo into, into volunteers, the early stage of, of drug development, which then went on to, uh, you know, to build them to where they are today. So antibiotics, treatments for asthma uh, and hay fever, blood pressure and, and you know, gastric uh, issues, gastric problems. Then, no, I was persuaded to join ICI in the late 80s to develop a drug for hypertension and high blood pressure called the Cinepril, which is, is now used widely by millions of patients. I stayed at ICI and, and Zeneca for, for 13 years. They sent me out to Canada uh, to establish the, uh, the uh, research centre in Toronto for a few years. And then uh, in the, uh, the mid-90s, I came back to the UK and was appointed Global Head of Medical Research. So uh, all the medical departments around the world reported to me. I was responsible for all their medical activities across the, across the globe. Had a department of several hundred people and it was quite exciting. And we then, during that time, got probably about six medicines through, finally through the development pathway to become prescription medicines in oncology, in um, infection, anaesthetics. So it really was quite an exciting time. And as global head of medical research, you probably couldn't get much higher than that in, in Zeneca. So you were, you were a mover and a shaker. When, when you first joined them, did you have that in mind to move to the top, to be with the top decision makers? I'd, I'd thought about it. But, you know, when you join a big company, it's, it's yes, it's, you know, they're, they're up there, you know, the board and the senior managers. It's the sort of thing you think about. But uh, just, you know, obviously I did things right and uh, I think somebody perhaps spotted the, the uh, should we say, the talent I had and helped me move up through the organisation. So I ended up as, you know, just below the main board level, uh, running again, you know, all the, uh, the medical activities. So we were talking earlier about whether it was planned progression or uh, and the fact that um, 
you might not particularly be highly motivated, but you're very good at what you do. So you must have been doing a little bit of networking in the company as well. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, developing medicines is, you know, it's not a short-term thing. On average, every medicine that, uh, that moves from, say, the research phase that then wants to approach uh, to going into humans to start development, that's that between going into uh, humans um, and getting approval as a prescription medicine can take anything from 10 to 12 years. There's lots of people involved and at various stages as we do more and more clinical trials and then eventually get it approved and and even after it's a prescription medicine we still have to monitor that that medicine for safety aspects because we don't actually know that much about the drug uh, we've only probably exposed a, you know a, for a big disease like high blood pressure a few thousand patients in rare diseases we've perhaps only exposed a few hundred so there are various phases there in the development pathway. And when I joined the pharmaceutical industry, I thought, well, what's, to become you know, good at my job, I need to spend time in all those phases. So that's what I did. I went, you know, I started off at the, you know, putting medicines into humans for the first time, what we call phase one work. I then moved on to do uh, more clinical work and clinical studies. And my time in Canada was because it was a, a you know, it was a, a commercial company. We were selling medicines, uh, you know, it was, it was an operating company. So over those years, I, I actually gained experience of all the phase, phases of medicines development, right the way through to a prescription uh, product. And so uh, having got that, uh, I, you know, it made me probably quite a good candidate to be a head of medical research, which oversaw all the uh, all the lot of it. It's hugely interesting. You're listening to Business Brunch, and we're talking to Alan Boyd from Alan Boyd Consultants Limited. Alan, as global head of medical research, you were rubbing shoulders with top international decision makers, which must have given you a real buzz. So, tell us what made you decide to start your own business. Well, it was quite fortuitous, really, because when I was at, at Zeneca, um, they merged with uh, another uh, a Swedish company called Astra, Astra Pharmaceuticals, and that became Astra for, uh, AstraZeneca. Now, given where I was in the, in the company, when big companies come together, uh, they, uh, they decide, really, who's going to get what jobs as part of that sort of merger. And in fact, uh, most of us at Zeneca who were doing research and development of the medicines uh, were all made redundant, which is quite a shock. That I, must have been a huge you know? shock. <laughs> uh, well, I knew it was sort of coming, let's put it that way. But, and it's, it's nothing to do, you know, at that level, there just isn't the seat at the table for two heads of medical research, no. for instance, or, you know, head of research. So it, so it happened. And, you know, it, people are often surprised that as a doctor, I was made redundant. You know, it, but it does happen. When you put it like that, it does sound. Yes, odd. does say, you know, as yeah. a doctor, you made redundant, but it 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 it, it did, and um, and I wasn't short of opportunities, should I say? You know, being a senior position, but I was given the opportunity to start a company based on gene therapy. Now, the the first human study using DNA and gene therapy had only been really conducted about six years before. And there hadn't been much work done at all. And people thought I was crazy to even think about going and developing medicines in, in, for gene therapy. But I was approached by a, by a recruiter. They'd, uh, there was two founding professors uh, 
one at University College London, Professor John Martin, and a professor in Finland, Professor Seppo Ulahertwala. That's an interesting name. We just call him very, Seppo. Very interesting. Um, and they'd worked together for about 15 years. And um, particularly Seppo had these ideas about uh, developing medicines and uh, from, from the research he'd done. So they went to, uh, to a venture capitalist and you know, said, are you interested in funding? And he said, yes, I am. Uh, this was Chris Evans, actually. Not the DJ, by the way, but the entrepreneur. Um, and he was quite happy to put £3 million into the company, providing, he said, they got proper leaders. So I joined two, two other people, uh, a CEO and a, a CFO. Uh, so the three of us set up the company called Arc Therapeutics in a small Muse office off Tottenham Court Road basement office so that's where it all started and again uh, you know nobody developed gene therapies people said you're crazy because there was no regulations nobody done it at all um, and uh, they, a lot of people couldn't really understand but now 20 years later we've got medicines based on gene therapy but the way I approached it is from a, a you know a, a regulatory point of view, what we have to demonstrate to governments and the regulatory authorities, like the Medicines Regulatory Authority here in the UK, is actually three things about a medicine when we're developing it. We have to be able to make it and make it consistently so that this batch is like the next batch is like the previous batch. You know, the last thing you want is to take a tablet or have an injection and it isn't quite right. So we have to guarantee the really that manufacture is correct. And there's a lot of controls around that, as you might imagine. We also have to show that it's safe in humans. Uh, And again, that's sort of relative, because if you're treating somebody with, say, you know, end-stage cancer with a medicine, that patient will put up with a lot of side effects. Uh, Whereas if you're treating a three-year-old with toothache, the last thing you want is is a side effect. So we have to, you you know, is it safe in the the disease we're treating? And the third thing is, is uh, does it work? Is it efficacious? And it actually doesn't matter whether it's a little white tablet or whether it's an antibody or whether it's a gene therapy. We still have to demonstrate those three things. So that's how I set about it. We had to make sure we could make it, it was safe in the population we were treating, and it worked. And that was really the start of, of, you know, the gene therapy work. And we we built ARC Therapeutics, we raised more money, we ended up at the end employing about 200 people, and I developed the first gene therapy. Uh, It was a, a, a treatment for brain cancer. And we took that through clinical trials, through all the development. We built a manufacturing facility in, in Finland uh, because this, and, and got the first regulatory license to manufacture a commercial gene therapy medicine. That was a first in the world, quite an achievement. So, yeah, you were leading the way. Yes, you were we were. Leading I mean, now uh, people say that we were pioneers uh, because nobody had done it before. And we worked very closely with the governments around the world to, to pull that together. We did file it. We, we'd got a great success uh, in, in, should we say, improving the survival in these brain cancer patients. But it, it was probably too early. This was in the mid-2000s. Uh, um, and uh, the regulators uh, d- didn't approve it. Um, you know for several reasons but okay it didn't get there but what we had done 
was actually pave the way yeah. for everything else you to follow. You started a process. That's right. Yeah. And eventually, because it wasn't approved, uh, we were in the middle of the recession then in 2007 and 2008. And so uh, we closed the company down. And unfortunately, I had to make 200 people redundant, which was not nice. They, most of them, yeah, tough it, decision. Yes, but they, the, the good thing was most, you know, they all got jobs because of the work we'd been doing. Yeah. And they're now working, these, this, you know, this group of people, many of them I'm still in touch with, you know, even 15 years later, they're all working away. And, you know, they've, uh, they've got this experience now. So it was quite exciting. And at that point then, that's when I set up the consultancy with, again, I was encouraged by quite a lot of investors who were working in this field to uh, help support the, the companies they were going to invest in. So they'd have they get me to have a look at the, you know, the ideas from these companies. Uh, then when they invest, they got me involved. And uh, I started off uh, Boy Consultants on my own but soon realised that uh, uh, I couldn't do it on my own, so hence the reason I've, I've built it up now. And, uh, uh, you know, our main work, uh, I mean, I've got offices here in Crewe, which is very important, an office in Cambridge, and we've recently opened an office in Dublin. I uh, did notice that. Yes, mainly because of Brexit, but uh, that's another story. But uh, we work for companies now from Sydney to San Francisco. There are now, you know, 20 years later, uh, after we started ARC, there are now 10 medicines available as prescription medicines uh, based on gene therapy and, and cell therapy uh, for treating a whole range of disease, cancer, rare diseases, um, treating you know, blindness and things like that. Out of those 10 products, uh, we've worked on seven of them at some time. So uh, I'm very proud of that. And so you should be. According to your website, you take research ideas that medical scientists and doctors have had to treat a particular illness or disease and help turn that into a medicine that can be used by patients, which is presumably what all the, the drug manufacturers are doing as well. Uh, but you've got a different medicine, the outcome. So tell us how your medicines differ from the drugs developed by the likes of Glaxo and Zeneca. Yes. Well, I look at the, at the way we have medicines. Uh, I break it really into three sort of blocks in that in the 60s and 70s after the first world war that's really when medicines development and, and new medicines uh, you know started happening of course you know just before the war they discovered penicillin and um, that's that really changed uh, the way I mean there were medicines before that yeah. but they weren't produced uh, and manufactured and researched like we we would do today and of course, there was the, the thalidomide problem in the 1960s, which changed our whole approach to medicines development and the safety of it. So in the 60s and 70s, we had medicines which were purely chemically based. They were things like, you'd probably be familiar with these, beta blockers and, and things like that, which were chemicals which would block a receptor. Uh, so, for instance, you know, beta blockers treat, treat high blood pressure. They block receptors in your heart and your circulatory system to bring your blood pressure down. These were chemicals. Um, you know, that's, all the drugs we were developing then were chemicals. Hence the companies like ICI, you know, they had a chemical base to them. You know, ICI was the biggest chemical company in the UK, you know, if not the world at, at one point. So that's where the, all that came from. But then we moved in the 80s to what I call the biological age. 
So we were developing antibodies, uh, treatments based on, on antibodies and proteins. And then more latterly, in the last 20 years, we've got treatments based on DNA um, and it, the drugs to treat, again, the, the immune system, like the CAR-T therapies that we've got to, to treat cancer. So we're now in the sort of uh, gene therapy age of medicines. That's where we are. And we're moving on now. I mean, we're getting people, probably your listeners have probably heard of gene editing, where we're able to actually modify the genes, take a bit out and put the right bit back in and things like that. So that's, uh, that's really how they differ. So 90% of the medicines now under development are biologically based. They're not chemicals any longer because we're actually using the body mechanisms and genes and, and you know, treating mutated genes and things. So it's very different. So you've started something pretty big. Pretty big, yes. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from The Cat. Alan, I understand that you're an enthusiastic tweeter. So even though you're a professor and you're a doctor and uh, amongst other things, you, you enjoy getting involved in social media. You work in a niche area of scientific research, so you still have to market the business. Tell us how you reach out to academics and other professionals when you're not tweeting. That's a good question, Des. Yes, I am quite active on social media, but you know, we are running a business to uh, you know to help companies develop their their ideas and, u- and universities as well. So we we have to let people know we're there. Now, I have to say, a lot of the work we get comes by word of mouth because of our reputation and, and what we've done. But the way that we do market the business, I mean, I I speak at a lot of conferences, as do members of my team. I mean, I've got a team now of, what, 25 people who work with me. So we we do go to conferences. Uh, We exhibit at conferences, so that uh, scientific conferences, so that they can see and have an opportunity to talk to us. Um, We do have a website uh, as well. That's very important now for, you know, for any business to have a website. We're no different. Um, and so that does attract quite a lot of uh, interest. That's, you know, if somebody, uh, somebody tells, oh, you should go to uh, Alan Boyd to help you, obviously the first place they go to is our website. So, you know, if you go on there, you'll see a lot about us and the history and the history of all the people that work with me. But we also, you know, we send out newsletters. One thing that a lot of our uh, clients and, and people that we work with found find interesting is we publish every month the latest regulations and if there's been any change in the medicines regulations around the world so that attracts interest but we're also active on linkedin so any news that comes out uh, you know it goes on to linkedin uh, and twitter as well but i also comment on things so a good example was uh, the gene therapy for inherited blindness uh, that we've worked on now for probably 13 years, got approved in the in the in the United States and here across Europe uh, last year, and it's been made available for the NHS. And two weeks ago, the BBC put out a, uh, a you know a press release and, and ran a short session on the news about the first three patients in the UK who were treated uh, with with this uh, gene therapy because they were going blind. And so I I then retweeted that. I put it on LinkedIn to say how, you know, really pleased to actually see the work we've been doing over the last 13 years, supporting the company in America, developing this medicine, actually getting to patients for the first time. And I actually commented, I was very proud that we'd worked on this and got this medicine to market. 
So from front to back, how long did that take? Uh, about 13 years. So it's quite a, and a cost lot of time. many, many tens of millions. Yeah. Uh, it's a rare disease. Affects this is for a uh, for a mutation in one of the uh, genes at the back of the eye that is, is, is the chemical that senses light called rhodopsin, and these uh, these people uh, they, it starts in early childhood when children are it's, it's it's inherited or sometimes it's a natural mutation. So these babies, if they, if they've got that, will when they start crawling, they start bumping into things. And typically, they will be more or less registered blind by the age of 15. And there's been no treatment for that. Oh, it's tragic, isn't it? Tragic, really? yes. Yeah. But we, uh, you know, it was the gene that caused the problem was identified. We were able to uh, find uh, that what the gene was. Uh, we developed the gene therapy. And the way we give gene therapy is we use viruses. I know it sounds a bit strange, but viruses are wonderful because they... Um, we use the good bits of a virus, you know. If if you, you get a cold, the virus spreads very quickly. I mean, look what's going on at the moment with Absolutely. coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. We don't use coronavirus, I, I should say, but we use other viruses like adenovirus, which does cause the common cold. And we, we take out the nasty bit that causes all the fever and the aches and pains and drop into that virus the gene that we're interested in. Uh, the ophthalmic surgeon will then inject it in, into the back of the eye uh, a bit it's actually the reverse procedure of having a detached retina and the gene will then go it will establish itself as the virus that it sits there in the eye doesn't cause any any uh, any particular diseases and things like that and then it this this gene will produce the right protein for the rhodopsin and enables the patients to see it's astonishing it is absolutely astonishing. and perhaps one of the proudest things when the just going back to the social media when i commented on twitter that you know, I'd been involved in this and was very proud to be. One of the three patients that had been treated with this actually sent me a message and said, "You've changed my life." And you know, it doesn't get much better than no, that from I'm, a patient. No, I'm, I'm certain it doesn't. Uh, Alan, you you now, as you, as you've already said, employ 25 members of staff, uh, and you work with academics in university medical schools around the world. And because this is such an, an exciting field of research, you have no problem hiring the, the very best people. Tell us how you see the future developing in gene therapy research. Well, where we started off, uh, and people often you know, question, question on this, we've mainly been treating rare diseases because it, really to show, to demonstrate that the gene therapies work. If we started off treating something like hypertension, you need an awful lot of people to demonstrate that your, you know, your medicine is, is working. Whereas with a rare disease, there's a selected population and the, the drug regulators in the government allow us to treat much smaller numbers of patients. Well, mainly because there aren't that many around. You know, yeah. like with the, the inherited blindness that I've just talked about, there are perhaps 6,000 people in the world with this. So it's very limited. But what we've done is we've, we've used that uh, and these rare diseases to show, A, we can make the drug and, and make the gene, as I've described. B, it's safe in the population that we're treating. And C, it works. Um, and now there are much broader, um, we're now treating much broader diseases. We're just about finishing off, for instance, a gene therapy for use in bladder cancer. So we started small. We demonstrated it works, we could make it, and we're now expanding into much bigger diseases. 
Now, where does the future lie? I think, you know, we've got gene therapy. We can now use uh, gene therapy to actually adapt uh, people's uh, white cells, for instance, to help them treat cancer. This is called CAR-T therapy, where we can take out white cells from a patient with cancer. We can use a gene therapy to modify that cell so that it expresses a different receptor on its surface and we put that back into the patient and those white cells will go and then attack the cancer and this has been very successful now um, so that's happening it's like immunotherapy but we're also now into gene editing where we can take cells out of humans say other white cells and actually correct the gene that's that's not working properly and put those back it's, it's a bit like you take it out, you've got their DNA. We use what's known as, in the technical terms, molecular scissors to cut out the bad bit or the, you know, the function, dis dysfunctional mutated gene and drop in the good bit and then put that back. You, clearly... You've already answered uh, <laughs> my question because I, I, people can't think this small. No. <laughs> you're going to a depth of smallness. That... Yes, oh, absolutely. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't do that work. There are, you know, I won't claim, you know, I'm, a, I'm an expert at that, but I know a lot of people that are, fortunately. You know. I've never heard the expression molecular, molecular scissors. scissors. Wonderful. It's Doctor Who science fiction stuff. It certainly it? is. You're listening to Business Brunch, and today we're talking to Alan Boyd from Alan Boyd Consultants Limited. Alan, in 2009, you were appointed honorary professor in the College of Medical and Dental Sciences at the University of Birmingham, Birmingham Medical School. Uh, in 2015, you were elected president of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine. In 2016, you received an Outstanding Contribution Award at the 15th Annual UK BioNow Awards. And in 2019, you won a Business of the Year Award at South Cheshire Chamber Business Awards. Uh, and this is just a small part of an, an amazing journey. So share with us, in your opinion, what have been the major milestones in your career so far? I think the first one was actually getting to medical school. Because, uh, as I said earlier, uh, I'd always wanted to be a doctor. Um, I, I'll be quite, you know, be quite open about this. I grew up on a council estate in Blackpool, and uh, you know, very few people. You know, I was, I was one of the first people from the the council estate to go to grammar school. And I know when I was little, I'd say, you know, I'm going to be a doctor, and I'd hear people say to my mum and dad, "Don't worry, you'll grow out of it." But I never did. So perhaps. You know, the, the the fact I got to medical school was 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 the start of it, and then of course graduating. I, I can still remember when I got my final results. That was quite a celebration. Um, and then going on to 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 treat patients, and I, I patients are wonderful. Um, you know, you you can, you, you, particularly when you're working in hospitals, and and some of them are very sick. It was it was quite a challenge sometimes treating those people, but it's individual successes. Yeah, you know, I you know I remember sitting with one patient whose kidneys was failing, and we had him on dialysis all night, trying to you know working with him and things, and he you know he did he did survive. It's a small thing, but you know that's that's where it is. But you work with as a researcher, you work in small incremental changes, yes, don't you? Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, you have to. You can't rush these things. No. As I said, you know the sort of thing I I, I do takes years. Yeah, um, and I'm not saying 
everything I've done has been a success because it hasn't. I've developed lots of placebos, drugs that don't work. Right. I mean, if you look at the figures, out of every medicine that makes it to uh, be a prescription medicine, five others have gone into humans that haven't made it. And there's probably thousands that never even get near a human. So it's a high failure rate and takes a lot of time. So in terms of the highlights, probably um, is, uh, you know, setting up perhaps the, you know, the, gene, the first gene therapy company, getting that first product through development to show we could do it. And then more latterly, I think, actually bringing, seeing now how many medicines are there and, you know, and getting, getting messages from a patient say, you've changed my life. You know, it, it doesn't get much better than that, quite honestly. No, absolutely not. And looking back, I suppose working for a firm like Zeneca that were developing developing chemical drugs, I, I was astonished that they didn't have a vision for the future that, that encompassed gene yes, therapy. Gene therapy. Yeah. Well, um, I had a hand in that. Um, interestingly, two years before they merged with Astra, I was asked by the main board to review the area of gene therapy because by then, well, at that time, the first gene therapy study in a human had been conducted about four years previously. This is probably 1996. And my conclusion was um, it was far too complicated for a big farmer to embark on this because they were chemically based and they'd need to think in a totally different way. And so I recommended uh, that, you know, Zeneca did not move into the area of gene therapy. Right. And then two years later, when I was made redundant, I set up a gene therapy company. I know that's a bit ironic, but it's a, it was a totally different approach. And actually, with the history of gene therapy, the majority of the work, there were one or two big companies looking at it when, I, when we set up Arc Therapeutics in the, the late 90s. But most of the work had been it was done by small companies like ARC and academic units. It's only now, now that the products are getting approval, are big pharma coming in and actually buying up all these small companies as part of their portfolios. But they haven't been responsible. And I, I do keep reminding people, actually it was us little guys, you know, with companies of 200 people and not much money, based out of an office just off Tottenham Court Road, that actually started all this. So that's, you, that's the difference. You were mean and lean ra rather than a big tanker. Really. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, amongst your many qualifications, you're also a, a business mentor. So what, what advice would you give young entrepreneurs thinking of starting their own business? Yes, I, I do mentor people. And in fact, I, I'm, I'm very happy to, to talk to people. I get lots of calls and contacts. Can you help me? I, I, I do a lot of mentoring, for instance, at uh, Birmingham University with the medical students and, and the scientists there. Um, to be honest, I think looking back on my career, one, my one regret was I, I, I stayed too long in Big Pharma. I should have moved into a smaller business and probably set up, you know, Arc Therapeutics or a similar thing earlier. Uh, you know, hindsight's a great thing and perhaps the opportunity, you know, wasn't there. So it, it, with young entrepreneurs, what I say is be prepared to take a risk. You know, when I, when I, when I moved into the area of gene therapy, you know, I said to, you know, quite a lot of people, friends and, and, and other, you know, colleagues, um, am I doing the right thing? And what they said was, actually, 
it doesn't matter because if it doesn't work out, you're still a doctor. You've still, you know, got things under your belt that you can use. Yeah. And it's all about transferable skills. So, you know, I think, you know, it's very easy for me to say, you know, take a risk because people, you know, at certain ages, they've got mortgages, families and things like that. But don't worry about taking a risk. And one of the big things that, you know, certainly, you know, doing it at ARG, our product for brain cancer didn't make it. But actually that failure taught taught me a lot of things. Failing is very important. Um, so, you know, be willing to take a risk. Don't worry if you fail. Pick yourself up and, uh, you know, go off. Because actually you learn more from the failures than you do from the successes. Failure is part of the learning process. Yes. Uh, and without failure, you've got nothing to work with, have you? No, that's right. And as I said, uh, you know, a lot of the medicines I've developed haven't made it. You know, so uh, you have to you know, uh, be prepared to fail. It's, it's developing medicines is a high-risk business. People don't realise that. So, it's a hugely interesting area, and you're <laughs> going to have to come back and talk to us again at some point. Uh, but but as far as our interview goes today, Alan, we're, we're at an end. So could you tell us how, how we can contact Alan Boyd Consultants Limited? Probably the best way is through our website at, uh, at boydconsultants.com. Uh, you'll see there's there's a way of contacting us there. There's a, you know in, emails addresses like info at boyconsultants dot com. That's probably the the best thing. Or you know look out for things on LinkedIn or Twitter. You know when I'm tweeting, happy to contact that way too. Okay, Alan, it's been a real privilege and a pleasure to meet you today. Thank you for coming into the cat. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it too. Go to listen dot thisisthecat dot com for more podcasts and more ways to listen.